Thank you for listening to Whatever, I'll Watch It, a podcast bringing queer of color critique to all your favorite movies and TV. Each episode, me and a guest will talk gender, race, sexuality, and all things representation, because TV podcasts are way too fucking white. I'm your host, Alexia, and today I'm bringing you a mini episode about the mini series, Mrs. America. For those of you who haven't seen the show, it's about the struggle to pass the Equal Rights Amendment in the United States and provides a window into second wave feminist organizing in the 1970s. As always, I'm going to talk a lot of shit today about the whiteness and liberalism in this show, but I want to at least start by saying that I did actually like the series. The only names I really knew before watching Mrs. America were Shirley Chisholm, Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, and Phyllis Schlafly. I had never heard of Bella Abzug, Flo Kennedy, Margaret Sloan Hunter, Brenda Fagain Festo, or many of the other characters we see on screen. So it was really interesting to learn about these leading feminist figures for the very first time. I found myself constantly pausing the show to look up, wait, did this really happen? Who is this character? Which for a feminist TV nerd like me is the best way to consume media. I appreciated that the show depicted the struggles, tensions, and debates within feminist organizing at the time, and really complicated the idea that women are naturally going to be allies for each other's rights and liberation, because we see women constantly disagreeing with each other, betraying each other, and in the case of Phyllis Schlafly and the conservative Republicans, actively working against each other to uphold dominant power structures and the status quo. I do wish the show devoted more time to exploring women of color organizing and socialist or Marxist feminisms, but I think the potential of the show was really inherently limited by its choice to focus on the fight for the ERA instead of exploring other strands of feminism or even other types of social movements that were happening at the time, like the Black Power movement, gay power movements, protests against the Vietnam War and U.S. imperialism. And no, for the record, the series simply showing a national black feminist organization flyer and introducing a couple of lesbians towards the end of the run doesn't count as actually exploring those movements or their contributions to U.S. feminism. If you've listened to any of my podcast episodes before, or if you follow me on Instagram, you'll know that I'm pretty critical of liberal rights-based approaches to politics, which tend to focus on reforming our social and political systems through the passage and enforcement of laws. That is exactly what the ERA intended to do by giving women equal protections in employment, property, and divorce through the law. While legal safeguards do matter, and I'm not such a political purist that I oppose the existence of organizations like the ACLU, I do think that rights-based social movements are inherently limited, and it's dangerous to shape our political movements around them. Because as Dean Spade and many others have argued, laws rely on the state to protect us. When we have ample history that demonstrate the state is often the one marginalized groups need to be protected from. Just because an anti-discrimination law is passed doesn't mean a member of a marginalized group is going to suddenly stop experiencing discrimination. There are racists, misogynists, homophobes, transphobes who are lawyers, judges, police, members of juries. Our entire legal system works to justify the continuing existence of a white supremacist settler colonial state. So no, our freedom, our liberation, it isn't going to come from courtrooms or the offices of legislation. And too often when these symbolic anti-discrimination laws are passed, liberals become complacent because these laws give the illusion of progress. So I think rights-based movements can do just as much harm as good. A lot of black and women of color feminists have recognized the limitations of these liberal rights-based struggles, and they have been organizing instead for a more transformative approach to politics that seeks to completely dismantle our existing systems and to build new relations that are more equitable and more survivable. 
Although the Combahee River Collective was never mentioned in Mrs. America, they were a group of black feminists who recognized their oppression as black women was clearly linked to capitalism and that their liberation was dependent on creating new economic relations. For those who have never heard about the CRC, they are the first group to use the term identity politics and articulated the concept of intersectionality before Kimberly Kinshaw coined the term in 1991. It was a group that actually came out of and broke away from the National Black Feminist Organization because they saw the NBFO as too reformist, not sharing their vision for liberation. While the fight for the ERA is arguably not taught or talked about as much as it should be, black feminist approaches to gender justice and women of color's roles in shaping feminism are given even less airtime. So I think in designing the show around this one rights-based political struggle, it really was setting itself up to be whitewashed from the beginning and to reinforce a really limited and I think damaging view that political change is something that happens in Washington, D.C. through lobbying and voting. Since we're already digging into the whitewashing of the series, let's take a look at how Mrs. America treats its black feminist characters, Shirley Chisholm, Margaret Sloan Hunter, and Flo Kennedy. I thought the episode about Shirley's failed presidential run was way too relevant to what we are seeing now in 2020, when liberals are arguing for political expediency and convenience, while leftists are demanding we don't settle and should push for more than a choice between two candidates who are both millionaire white male rapists. As shown in Mrs. America, when Shirley ran on the Democratic ticket in 1972, she wasn't able to get the endorsement of the Congressional Black Caucus or the Congressional Women's Caucus, despite being founding members of both caucuses. Why? They didn't think she was electable. Mrs. America shows Bella Abzug fighting with Shirley, insisting that she drop out and give her delegates over to McGovern so that he can win. The fact that Shirley had her own political strategy of building coalitions and winning enough delegates to influence the other candidates' platforms was completely ignored and dismissed by Bella, who thought Shirley wasn't being realistic. The show also depicts Gloria Steinem openly supporting and cheering on Shirley, but then betraying her at the last minute by putting her support behind McGovern. In real life, the closest Gloria Steinem came to publicly endorsing Shirley Chisholm was by calling McGovern the best white male candidate in the press, implying Shirley was the best Democratic candidate, but without actually ever saying so. Although Gloria supposedly helped Shirley fundraise and was supportive of her candidacy, she didn't endorse her in the press. Why? And although Gloria undoubtedly had a lot of sway with the National Organization of Women, now still gave McGovern the official endorsement, again because they thought he was more electable, even though he was ultimately beaten by Nixon in a landslide. It was way too real to see these white feminists celebrating Shirley face-to-face and then immediately throwing her under the bus when supporting her was no longer politically convenient. This happens again later in the series, when Bella refuses to support Shirley in publicly outing and denouncing Democratic congressmen who have been sexually harassing and assaulting their secretaries. Even though Bella's whole strand of feminism is focused on empowerment and protection for women in the workplace, she wasn't willing to clean up her own working conditions because it would have negative repercussions on her own political career. I also want to touch on Shirley's political platform, because I'm not a fan of that shallow liberal feminism that tells us we should celebrate black woman candidates just because they are black women. Sorry, Kamala, but your identity does not erase your truancy laws, your cooperation with ICE and Border Patrol, and your moves to block transgender prisoners from receiving trans-affirming health care. So, 
When Shirley was an assemblywoman and later a congresswoman, she passed legislation extending unemployment benefits to domestic workers, helped create the WIC program, worked on a bill giving domestic workers minimum wage, and advocated to decrease the military budget to better fund social programs. She was outspoken against the draft and U.S. imperialism while advocating for better benefits for veterans. While Shirley didn't call herself a socialist, we can definitely see in her political career that she was left-leaning. She even gained the endorsement of the Black Panthers, who didn't really fuck with electoral politics until the following year, when founder Bobby Seale and Central Committee member Elaine Brown ran for seats in Oakland. The issues that Shirley supported and dedicated her political career to were intersectional and focused on the most marginalized, extending rights and benefits to low-paid women of color workers who were often left out of legislation focusing on middle-class whites. Yet, when I did research on Shirley Chisholm for this episode, it was extremely difficult to find the content of her presidential platform anywhere online, because all of the articles instead focused on the fact that she was the first black woman to run for president. While it's of course important and historic that Shirley was the first black woman to run for president, it's tokenizing and honestly dehumanizing to celebrate Shirley for this without actually paying attention to her political stances, which were really visionary and progressive. Since her platform is just glossed over in the show, it's important to remember Shirley not only as a black woman who ran for president, but as a black woman who fought for the rights of women of color, families, poor people, working people, immigrants, veterans, and people around the world impacted by U.S. imperialism and war. It's also important to remember that black women were articulating social policies in 1972 that we are still struggling for today. And guess what? They were being told to wait that it wasn't realistic, that it wasn't yet time. The same exact message that Democrats are spewing today, and we're supposed to side with them and vote for them and wait for them, because at least they aren't Nixon or Reagan or Bush or Trump. Let's move on to the second black woman we get in the series, Margaret Sloan Hunter, a black lesbian activist who marched alongside Martin Luther King Jr. and later was an editor and the only black employee at Miss Magazine. If I'm recalling correctly, we really only get two scenes with her. In the first, she proposes a piece about tokenism at work and is basically met with shock and indignation that she dare bring up tokenism in her feminist workplace that's so inclusive. After this exchange between Margaret and her all-white staff, we find out that Margaret founds the NBFO, the National Black Feminist Organization, because there's this quick scene where Gloria sees the flyers in the printer and offers to help Margaret find a meeting space, which she declines. We never see any scenes of the NBFO or get to hear about what they're actually doing. And then Margaret leaves Miss Magazine due to feelings of tokenism and racism in the workplace. So clearly with this storyline, the show is making an effort to critique Miss Magazine and the racism and tokenism of the women's liberation movement. But here's what's fucked up. In real life, Margaret didn't leave Miss Magazine until a year later. So the show basically wrote the one black feminist staffer at Miss Magazine out of the show just to make a point about tokenism within women's liberation, which really feels incredibly ironic. The other black woman who is kind of a main cast member is Flo Kennedy, a black lawyer and activist who is an early member of NOW and a founder of the National Women's Political Caucus and the National Black Feminist Organization. We get a small glimpse of black feminist life when one episode depicts black women gathering in Flo's apartment. But instead of using this scene to show us some of the organizing and theorizing happening in black feminist communities, we get a scene where Flo tells off some black women for not wanting to work with white women in the feminist movement. Even in a rare scene with no white women, white women are still the topic of conversation. 
And here's the thing. Flo was a badass lawyer and activist. Her politics were focused on the liberation of women, gay people, prisoners, sex workers, children, elders, disabled people, and Native Americans. She constantly called upon the white feminist movement to align itself with other related struggles. She was a vocal supporter of prisoners during the Attica Uprising in 1971. As a lawyer, she defended 21 members of the Black Panther Party charged with a bombing conspiracy. And in 1973, she organized a protest at Harvard where women poured fake urine all over the university and protested the lack of bathrooms for women on the campus. This all happened during the show's timeline. So why didn't we get to see any of it? Why wasn't there any direct action or civil disobedience represented in the show? Do they really want people out here thinking feminist struggles are about writing, publishing, lobbying, voting? Why was an amazing woman like Flo sidelined as a minor character? I really do not understand why Phyllis Schlafly, Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, Bella Abzug, Jill Ruckelshaus, Brenda Fagan-Fisto, and Alice McRae got their own episodes. And we just get glimpses of Margaret and Flo's stories throughout the series. It is completely unacceptable. Doing the bare minimum to acknowledge racism within the women's liberation movement does not lead to its undoing, especially when this series falls into the same types of tokenization and erasure that it pretends to be critiquing. I am literally already done talking about the representation of women of color in the show, which was only black women, um, because there's such little representation. So let's just get into the white characters. First, Phyllis Schlafly and her crew quite simply get way too much fucking airtime. The episode focusing on the National Women's Convention, which is supposedly a pretty big deal, right? It was focused instead on the character arc of Alice McRae, one of Phyllis's lackeys who starts to doubt her involvement with the Eagle Forum. While that episode had some fun moments, sure, Alice gets fucked up on pills, unknowingly befriends a feminist, and sings along to Willie Nelson's socialist anthem... I liked all that, and also, I was really bothered by their decision to write this redemption arc in for this white fundamentalist character. Why is television so obsessed with humanizing white people and white women in particular? White women never have their humanity questioned. Who does are the countless women of color that were erased from the series. The only time we even see more than one Latina woman on screen is through the eyes of Alice's white woman character who looks confused and scared when she sees a group of Spanish speakers talking about feminicidio and aborto in the hallway, presumably because the conference organizers didn't care enough to create a literal space for Latina women. I already talked about the marginalization of black feminism in the series, but seriously, where are all of the Native, Latina, and Asian and Pacific Islander women? Black feminists were not theorizing and organizing alone, but were working with and in solidarity with other third world women who are just completely absent from the series. But anyways, I was supposed to be talking about white girls, so back to Phyllis. While I think her airtime could have been cut in half, and we still would have understood the point, I did like the way the show highlighted her hypocrisy and how she was also harmed by misogyny while using all of her power and influence to continue to prop it up. Although I do want to note that this representation might reinforce that white victim narrative once again. I think the show also did a good job depicting how Phyllis harmed the woman close to her so that she could get ahead, which is really peak white feminism. It's not about collective liberation. It's about improving the conditions of a very particular privileged subset of women. 
I think we see this again when Phyllis's husband points out that she couldn't have gotten into Harvard Law because they weren't even accepting women when she pretended to receive an offer. But Phyllis responds, they would have made an exception for me. It's also worth noting Phyllis has a gay son, which is real. Um, And throughout his life, he actually continued to support his mother and defend her disgusting conservative platform. It's another reminder that white gay men are not shit. And of course, hashtag not all men, but like the show is really asking us to move beyond a shallow identity politics that sees all women or all queers as natural allies because the differences between us are really important and identity does not correlate with someone's political values. Speaking of which, where the hell is class consciousness in this show? I honestly can't think of a single time that material conditions are discussed, capitalism or class, which is wild considering that Shirley basically ran on a socialist platform. And like I mentioned before, the CRC was organizing at this time and were linking their analyses of racism and sexism to capitalism and class. On to the white feminists. I don't really have much to say about Gloria Steinem or her depiction in the series. She gets so much airtime in the show, why would I give her more airtime on this podcast? I just wish they had spent less time exploring her celebrity or her beefs with Bella and Betty and showed us more about Frank Thomas's character in life. In case you don't remember who he is because he wasn't given any backstory, it is the black man we see Gloria dating in the beginning of the series. He was a real person that she really dated, and he was an activist and a history maker who had a life of his own. He studied law at Columbia, worked with the NAACP to investigate racial discrimination and housing, and he later became the first black man to sit on the board of the Ford Foundation. We don't get any of that background on Frank, and he's simply written out of the series and replaced by Gloria's new love interest, a white Republican lawyer in the Nixon administration. It is really suspect that Gloria dated a Republican for years of her life, all the while insisting the personal is political. If the revolution starts at home, that means all of us need to be working to hold the people in our lives accountable, holding them to the same standards we reserve for politicians, activists, and everyone else. I know straight people like to affirm my existence as a queer by shouting, love is love. But no, I do not endorse loving someone whose very purpose in life is to annihilate your existence or to curb your liberation through their political career. I also don't have much to say about Betty Friedan, except that the show really downplayed her homophobia and all of the immense harm she caused to so many gay and lesbians in the feminist movement. And it felt like her homophobia was only mentioned as a plot device so that they could give us, once again, a white woman redemption arc when Betty stands up at the national convention and says she's finally ready to extend rights to lesbians. Of the white characters, I enjoyed Brenda Fagain Festo's storyline the best. It was deeply satisfying to watch her shred Phyllis apart in the debate, demanding she cite the case she was referencing. Although, side note, it is depressing to think about the post-truth world we live in today and how Phyllis's lying and fear-mongering has just become so commonplace. I have not watched the debates. I am not going to, but I can just imagine there are so many similarities between Trump and Schlafly and how they carry themselves and construct false realities. Um, And it's hard to imagine people being swayed by Brenda's legal knowledge and logic now, you know, the way she might have been more influential back then. But anyways, I loved Brenda's storyline because for once we get some really affirming bi-representation. Brenda is happily married to a feminist man but has sex with a dyke photographer and discovers she really loves being with women. When she confides this to her husband, instead of him melting down or getting angry, he just accepts it as part of who she is and tells her she doesn't need to feel torn between straightness or gayness, that it's okay to defy convention. 
they don't really resolve this conversation and we don't know how their relationship changes afterwards but i love to imagine this bi character thriving in a non-monogamous marriage that meets her needs I read one review of the show that was annoyed they created this storyline for Brenda instead of including actual queers organizing at the time. But here's the thing. Brenda has written about having relationships with women during this period of her life. So while, yes, the affair and her partner's affirmations might have been made up, that doesn't erase the fact that as a bisexual woman, Brenda is queer. And that for many bisexual queer women, seeing that storyline play out in a way that didn't end with violence, abuse or abandonment was deeply affirming. I wish I had more to say about queer representation in the show, but the few queer women we saw on screen were so minor that I didn't even catch their names. And I don't really know what they contributed to the storyline other than setting up yet another redemption arc for a white woman. This time, Bella Abzug, who is shown to go through a crisis of conscience about whether to include sexual preference in the agenda for the convention, which, by the way, was totally fabricated. While Bella couldn't seem to support Shirley, she didn't have any problem supporting white lesbian women and apparently has had a consistently pro-LGB platform throughout her life. All right, y'all, I think that might be enough rants on white feminism for one day. Despite the show's shortcomings, I do think it's worth watching with a critical eye if any of you listening haven't actually watched the series. Like I mentioned at the start of the episode, it gives a good reminder that women aren't a united identity group and that there's always been really significant divisions and disagreements within feminism. I enjoyed the complexity it tried to give to these historical figures who can easily be romanticized because too often people look back at former liberation movements with rose-colored glasses instead of trying to learn important lessons from their shortcomings and mistakes. As always, if there's points I didn't touch on, if you have different interpretations or perspectives, I would love to hear them. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at WhateverTVPod, and you can send me an email at WhateverTVPod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a second to rate and review the podcast. This is a completely DIY queer of color operation, and your support can go a long way to support my media and help me find new listeners. If you want to give me a shout out on social media, that would also be super cool. You can just tag me at whatever TV pod. Thank you for listening. And if you haven't done so already, go read up on the Combahee River Collective. I will post links to resources in the show notes. Mm-hmm.